Good morning and welcome to another episode of Recovery from Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Frame, and today is Tuesday, March 30th, 2021. They finally got that boat out of the Suez Canal. That was sooner than expected. I was reading reports that said it would be weeks, but really it was only about six days. (sighs) You know, I was was thinking out loud about it. You know, there are all these times you worry about, or at least... I mean, it was for me about 20 years ago, everybody was worried about terrorism. And it it seems like we're we're lucky that terrorists are stupid because there are so many things where I'm just like, dude, why don't you just, did you not see like 10% of the world's economy came to a complete standstill because a boat got stuck? I mean, really thank your higher power that, uh, they're not that bright, and they don't think in those terms. I mean, outside of 9-11, nothing they've done has really, you know, resonated, has really mattered. Um, I mean, past the local area, of course. And I'm, I'm not making light of uh, the tragedy that happens when a terrorist attacks, but um, it's a good thing these guys really don't tend to think big, and they don't seem to be very bright. Uh because situations like the Suez Canal, just like, really? That's all it took? <clears throat> wow. Anyway, news yesterday was kind of interesting and all over the place. So this is a huge episode, or at least I think it will be. Um, but we're going to start, of course, with the coronavirus, because that's everyone's favorite topic. And of course, right now you have the rehabilitation tour going on by uh, Dr. Burks and a whole lot of ex-Trump appointment officials. Uh, see, they can't get jobs anywhere. Nobody wants to hire them. And uh, the places they are going are kind of not great. Usually, uh, when an administration comes to an end, um, some of the key players go on and they, they're like, they get nominated or, or become members of boards of corporations or lobbying firms or in some cases, um, colleges, universities, you know, um, or they get huge, huge, uh, gigs on, uh, on media platforms. And that's not really the case here. Um, it's, it's not going on and nobody really wants their books. They don't sell well, but what you do have is a lot of them coming out now. And of course they, tell you that everything is way worse than what we actually knew at the time, which is pretty bad because I have a pretty good imagination. And uh, I can always imagine that it was 10 times worse than what the media was reporting during the Trump presidency. But of course, they come out and they try to spin it so that they're no longer the villains when it was pretty obvious that, you know, "Eh, sorry, no, you were you were one of those. You know, um, everybody likes to pretend about how they would act if they were alive in a different era. You know, uh, Eddie Murphy once made a joke that he had friends of his who, uh, who wished that there was slavery because he would, you know, they would mess some people up and Eddie Murphy's just like, no, that's not how that works, man. <laughs> and unfortunately there, uh, these days, um, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, people like to think, oh, you know, if I was alive during Nazi Germany, you know, I would have said something, I would have done something. And in reality, it's like, well, you you had your opportunity here, really. 
um, especially for the people who remained in the administration. And it's it's always strange to me that they make this they make this bargain. As long as I stay, you know, if I don't resign in protest, if I don't make a huge stick about it, if I if I stay, I can temper the you know more insane reactions. I can I can make a difference, you know. Uh, because if I leave, who knows who will come in and take over for me. And you have all these people who make that bargain with themselves. They justify it to themselves. They try to clear their conscience. <clears throat> it never works. Not once. Not once. You know, uh, horrific things still happened. It didn't matter that you were there or not. You know what would have mattered? If you and other like-minded individuals, and you know there were some, got together and said, you know, maybe one of us resigning in protest and making a huge stink wouldn't be that big of a deal. But you know, if 10 cabinet level officials all at once resigned from a presidency, you don't think that would have reverberations? I mean, because the media and, you know, the, the sycophants, they can, they can justify, they can argue away the one. I mean, they did it with John Bolton. <laughs> You know, John Bolton was a huge Trumpy. Uh, he he was just angry that Trump wasn't as anti-Iran as he thought he was. Um, but he came on and he was all on board and they defended him up until the point where he decided, no, I'm out. This is ridiculous. And then all of a sudden the knives came out. And what they ended up saying was, oh, you know, he was never really into it. He was a he was a Trojan horse. He's a worker with the left. He's just in it for the, all those wonderful liberal dollars raining down from the sky. Um uh, still waiting on my check, <clears throat> you know, um, and they, they can, they can justify that away. They can, they can tell that story. They can spin it. What they couldn't spin is if it happened in mass, if there's an entire wing of the West wing that just decided, you know, no, we're out, we're done. This is it. You're, you're, you're all gone. You know, I mean, if there were significantly high level individuals who all decided to resign and mass all at once, that would send a message that the right supremacy and its media machine would not be able to spin away. But here's Dr. Burke saying, quote, the majority of the people in the White House did not take this seriously, unquote. She goes on further and says hundreds of thousands of lives could have been saved. Basically, she's saying, okay, you know, pandemic comes out, uh, everybody's caught with their pants down. So the first you know, hundred or so thousand individuals who passed away. Uh, you could you could argue that away. You could justify. It. You could be like, you know, we had a president, and uh, you know what president expects a pandemic. I mean, sure, uh, Biden might be one of the sole exceptions, considering he was vice president when Obama had to deal with Ebola, and you know, considering the deaths in that were in the single digits. Um, I consider it a job well done. Uh, but also, you know, Ebola was a completely different virus. It it would kill you. And uh, it was actually harder to transmit than Corona. <clears throat> so you could say, hey, you know, you have this brand new virus that nobody knows anything about. And it comes out of nowhere. And it it's weird because it doesn't always kill you. I mean, the, the initial reports were that less than 2% of anybody who even caught it would die. And, you know, I mean, if you're thinking in the terms of there are 7 billion human beings on the planet, that doesn't sound too bad as far as diseases go. Um, you know, so you could, you could almost justify an initial lackadaisical 
oops, like we just had no idea that this was going to blow up and become the thing that it did. You could, you could argue that. And honestly, it, yeah, you could. You could. If the death toll right now stood at quarter million people or less, I think you could call that a success in our country. I think you could say, hey, yeah, you know, that first hundred thousand, that was we got caught and you know it took it took time because of course there are there are people on the opposite side of the spectrum who they just didn't want to believe it was a real thing and they thought it was being overblown and i mean you you can understand with this particular virus it had its unique set of challenges versus i mean honestly if ebola no shit broke out in the us the way covid did no one would be arguing the masks, okay? That thing is horrific, and it's everywhere, and no. You would not have states, whole states, giving the middle finger to the president and telling them, no, we're going to remove the mask mandate right now if it was Ebola. If it was Ebola, chances are you'd have states saying, I know we're in a union, but our borders are closed, and the other 49 states can suck it. Um I mean, I honest to God think that would happen. But with this thing, it's so, yeah, you know, it it comes on. Some people, some people are asymptomatic. Some people, it's no worse than the common cold. Some people, it's just like the flu. And then some people are in the ICU fighting for their lives. And, and even if they survive that ordeal, um, they have long-term health problems now that there are people who did not have asthma before they basically have asthma now you know they have to be very very careful with everything now because they had it and they lived congratulations you know i mean for me all it took was uh, there was a report of a, a young high school player i think he was in college and and he got it and then afterwards, he couldn't play football anymore because he had a heart condition. And I'm like, wait a minute. You would assume somebody in their teens, low 20s, who's an athlete, is pretty much in the prime of their life, in excellent health. And they had to give up sports because of a heart condition. He's in his 20s, and now he has a heart condition that prevents him from playing sports. I mean, that's, that's, that's scary to me. I mean, screw the death thing. Okay. If I die, there's nothing I can do about it. Right. If, if death comes knocking, I've accepted that. That's just how my brain works. I've accepted that. You know what I haven't accepted? Dealing with shit for a long time. Like if you told me, Kyle, now you have a heart condition that says your heart can never go past, you know, uh, I don't know, 130 beats a minute. And I'm like, dude, that that's a lot. That's a lot. I'm basically walking around like Bruce Banner in the Hulk movie, constantly watching my heartbeat for the rest of my life. That's scary as hell. Or if you told me all of a sudden I have a lung condition and the slightest hint of smog or a campfire could set me off and I could have significant trouble breathing. That's that's a thing. Oh, and by the way, that's the rest of your life, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a spring chicken or anything. I'm 40, but, but still I would hope that there are decades in my future. And if you told me right now, you're going to have something debilitating for decades 
And oh, by the way, there was nothing you could do about it. You can't eat the right way. You can't exercise the right way. You can't live the right way. You caught this disease by luck of the draw. And now you have this condition for the rest of your life. There was no way to avoid it. It was inevitable. And you now have decades remaining with it. I can't do that. If you told me I had to manage chronic pain or something like that for decades, that scares the bejesus out of me. But if you told me, hey, you're going to get hit by a truck tomorrow, <clears throat> yeah, okay, I can't do anything about that. You know, I mean, I mean, really, I mean, seriously, if you, if you told me that, it'd be like, well, you know, I can't do anything about it. So if Corona hit me, it would suck, no doubt. I, I don't want to die or plan on it. But I mean, if it, if it caught me and I ended up dead, okay, that sucks, but it's over, you would hope. I hope. Ooh, COVID in the afterlife. That's scary. Let's not go there. But, you know. Ugh, yeah, no thanks. <clears throat> but anyway, <laughs> the way this thing moves and the way it goes, you know, I could, I could give you the first 100,000 and then all of a sudden you're like, wow, you know, these numbers are crazy. We need to, like, stamp down, you know, chop, chop. And then you motivate the government, you organize a response, you get the PPE made, and uh, you make sure everybody has a mask. Hell, you mail everyone a mask, you know, along with the stimulus check. Everybody gets 100, you know, disposable masks and gloves and, you know, all this other stuff. I mean, really, that that should have been one of the responses. It's just like, here's some alcohol wipes, here's some, here's some masks, you know, do your due diligence, you know, uh, work with the states to make sure those lockdowns happen. I'm not sure if the president can actually enforce one. I don't think so, because President Biden is currently trying to get everyone to comply with that, but he doesn't seem very, you know, powerful in regard to it. I imagine it would take an act of Congress in the form of some kind of emergency power, similar to martial law, but without the curfews. And I don't think Congress is anywhere near doing that, um, you know, there are some people who just rather see them die. <clears throat> but for me, my huge takeaway from this whole, you know, everything was worse than you think story from the Trump administration is that elections have consequences. We elected a pathological liar and a narcissist to the presidency. These were known facts. I mean, nobody went into this blind and I... <sighs> When I say we, I don't necessarily mean the average voter. I have a huge disdain for the average voter. I think they're idiots. They frequently vote against their best interests. They do not do their research, and they can be easily manipulated by a fucking television ad. So, no. I, I really, you know, anybody who says, oh, I'm waiting for the debates to make my decision, like, you, you suck. You know that, right? It's like... Why, what is going to happen during a debate that will change your mind? I mean, perhaps way back when at the beginning when it was Kennedy versus Nixon and there was some substance and the debates mattered and legit questions were being asked and the two participants were, you know, legit giving, you know, very thoughtful, detailed answers. You could be like, oh yeah, that's interesting. But we don't watch debates for that anymore. We want to hear what they have to say. We want to hear about the insults. I mean... During the Democratic primary in this year, it was it was horrible. They spent like weeks discussing whether or not uh, Kamala Harris's attack on Biden, 
you know, for the, for the anti-busing thing from the eighties or whatever, you know, was going to ruin him. And I'm like, "Eh, no, who cares? Like, I don't, I don't care. I already knew that about him. It's a done issue. I'm not saying I forgive him for it or anything like that, but I'm like, why are you bringing up stuff I already know? Because I'm an informed voter. But this is just, uh, yeah. Anyway, when I mention, when I say we, we elected a narcissist and a pathological liar to the presidency, what I really mean are the gatekeepers. There are gatekeepers. There are keys to power that every ruler must have. And they failed us something awful. The Republican Party, I really did think, I was like, look, when it was clear that, you know, Trump was going to be the nominee. And for all of Ted Cruz's whining and screaming at the convention, it just wasn't going to happen. When Trump was going to become the nominee, I really thought, what would I do if I was Reince Priebus, you know, head of the RNC at that time? Okay, I didn't stop Trump during the primaries. In fact, there's plenty of evidence that Reince Priebus took every wrong step possible on the way to that nomination. He had the power to stop Trump. He made the exact wrong decisions at every turn. Okay, man, you're now at this point, you're at the convention, Trump's going to be your nominee. You still don't know who the hell the vice president's going to be. For all you know, it could be Rudy Giuliani or Newt Gingrich, and it would just wreck the party. You know where this leads. What would I do if I was in that situation at that time? And I was sitting here like, they should have called off the convention. Just called it off. Rope it off. Close it. Call the delegates. Be like, yeah, we're just not having a nominee this year. I would have gone out. I would have gotten the leaders. I would have got Mitch McConnell and all of them and just been like, the Republican Party is not, we're not proposing a nominee this year. Uh, Donald Trump is free to do whatever the hell he wants, but the RNC has no connection to him. We are not endorsing Clinton. We are also not endorsing Donald Trump. He can run as an independent, but the Republican Party is not his and we do not give it to him. And we are just canceling the whole convention. It's not happening. That's what I would have done. And I called for that to be done. I know, you know, your your average Facebook post doesn't get anywhere. And I wasn't on the air back then, but but that's what I was calling for. I was like, no, this is what you do. You cancel it. You cancel it. You shut it down right now. This man is not just a danger to your party. He is a danger to the country. It was very clear back then. But they went for it. So when I say they or we elected this person, I mean the gatekeepers. They failed us. And I also hold the Democrats entirely, entirely uh, to blame for Trump as well. I mean, (laughs) ugh, that's a whole other podcast. But we elected a pathological liar and narcissist to higher office. And the nature of those two things mandates that they surround themselves with fellow liars and potential narcissists, clingers on, or, uh, you know, a famous quote by, I believe, Steve Schmidt to explain Lindsey Graham, 
pilot fish. The pilot fish. <clears throat> so they're going to surround themselves with people who they're afraid to speak the truth. If you know, hey, if I tell my boss the truth, he's going to rage. He's going to throw things in his office. He's going to yell. He's going to scream. He's going to call me, you know, fuck burger or whatever. You're probably not going to tell the truth or not the whole truth, or you'll try to spin the truth. So it sounds better than it is. But the point is, is it's not unvarnished. It's not real. You know? There's a difference between, I think you have a problem, and you're an addict. Right? It's the same thing when you work for somebody like this who's a, who's a narcissist and a liar. It's like, <clears throat> you're not a liar, you're just... You see things differently. You work off alternative facts, you know. So you have those people who are afraid to speak the truth. And then and then you have the others who who know better, but carry the administration's water for them. And it's all under the pretext, oh, as long as I'm here, I can make a difference. No, history shows no, that never works. It it never works. It's like it's like me and uh and sanctions against nations. They don't work. They really don't. They annoy people, but they don't do what you think they do. They don't ever affect the people you want them to affect. They do nothing. Um, so, yeah, uh, I guess the bottom line here is uh, if Hillary were president, we would have less than half the deaths we have now. I truly believe that. Even if, I mean... I don't think Hillary is a stupid person. Um, that whole email fiasco, I think, is just uh, her generation. It's it's a fault of her age. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. It's just, you know, somebody in their 20s would have read that whole thing and be like, oh, my God, she's such an idiot. And, you know, I could see somebody her age just being like, what the hell do you mean? Private server, you know. Not saying she's dumb. She probably totally understood, you know, private server versus home server and all this other stuff. But it probably didn't click the same way as it would for somebody who was younger. Um, but first off, I don't think she would have taken the initial reports out of China about this disease lightly. She understands that you know, as president, one of your jobs is to protect the country. People look to the president to protect them. Nobody looks to the congressman to protect them, okay? And nobody really looks to their governor, although the governor does have significant power there too. But, I mean, nobody nobody looks to those people to protect them. When you think about protection, you think about the presidency. And that's where the power is. I mean, they run the military. Uh, so it's it's natural for us to think that. But I have to think that if Hillary were president in 2019 and 2020, when these reports first started coming out of Wuhan, China, she would have taken it seriously. 
she would have called out the Chinese for not sharing information uh, immediately, by the way, and uh, would have gotten people in the right areas, would have would have made sure behind the scenes before it hits here that, okay, do we have everything we need for this thing? You know, kind of a deal. And once it hit, taken action, locked down, uh, would have definitely put pressure on states that weren't locking down. I mean, basically it would have been almost the opposite of Trump who was, you know, begging people to, you know, take off the mask and go back to work and go back to shopping. And she would have done the opposite. <clears throat> she definitely would have uh, enacted some emergency powers that the president has to deal with the situation. But even if, hypothetically, even if she blew it off the way Trump did at the beginning, yeah, once that number starts creeping up to six figures, once you say 100,000 Americans are dead, I find it hard to believe that somebody like Hillary Clinton would have ignored the situation and said, oh, it's time to move on now. You know, don't worry, it'll all go away by summer. No, I really don't believe that. You know, one of the problems with a, a narcissist is uh, they get stuck in their ways. This is always my biggest complaint with uh, with some politicians. They never change their minds. They never evolve. A lot of them, they, they think one way and they just go with it. Like you could see this with uh, Bush and Iraq. That's a classic one, right? Bush goes into Iraq. There's clearly no weapons of mass destruction. He's screwed there, right? And he never ever goes back on it like yeah yeah maybe we screwed up or maybe there was some wrongdoing or never you know i'm so pissed off at my own you know i was misled by my own intelligence agency so i'm gonna start a independent committee to investigate what the hell happened to make sure this doesn't happen to the next president you know he never did any of that he just kept doubling down like no saddam was a bad guy and he deserved to go anyway and, and just kept going with it and ran with it over and over and over again and that's what made it a quagmire. You know, Trump kind of did the same thing. He was even worse because he was a narcissist because he just, he was like, no, it's not real. It's fake. It's bullshit. Even after he got it. And then he was so scared of the optics and the imagery of it that he hid his own vaccine. He didn't go out and get it in public and be like, look here, idiots, it's safe. No, he hid it. He didn't want anyone to even know he got it. So yeah, elections have consequences. Um, you do need to be wary of that. And uh, really, I'll never forgive the Republican Party for this. But also at the same time, I don't forgive the Democrats for this either. They really stepped in it. But again, that's a different one. So for our next segment, I'm going to start with a little bit of a football analogy. So every year in football, they obviously do the Most Valuable Player Award. And every year, it's never Russell Wilson from the Seattle Seahawks. And that infuriates a lot of Seattle fans. Um, because we always look at it through this context. Like, like, nobody denies his awesomeness. Like, everyone, it's across the board, everyone, even the people who were skeptical of him when he first came out of college and was like, he was too small. Like that's all gone now. Everybody admits Russell Wilson is great. The man will be in the hall of fame in just a few years. Um, it's, it's no doubt. 
He is going to be recognized as one of the greatest of his generation. He paved the way for a lot of quarterbacks. There are a lot of quarterbacks right now that would not be starting if not for him. And I include Patrick Mahomes on that list, uh, who also wins. But if you take Patrick Mahomes versus Russell Wilson, I always sit here and say, look, I don't care what anybody says. Russell Wilson, to me, is still better than Patrick Mahomes. And I'm, you know, you can look at the next last Super Bowl as evidence of this. Because in the last Super Bowl, his team did absolutely nothing to help him. And he couldn't do shit. Welcome to Russell Wilson's world. Okay, If you watch a Seattle Seahawks game, he has Pete Carroll, a defensive run-the-ball-first coach. He never wants to pass it, ever. They never give him an exceptional offensive line, okay? Um, he just he looks... The offensive line for Seattle has always looked atrocious. Some of that is Russell's fault. You know, he does start running and, you know, offensive linemen don't have eyes in the back of their head. They don't know where the hell he's going. So that is a bit of a challenge. But but his offensive line always looks really bad. And aside from this last year when he had uh, DK Metcalf and uh, Lockett, he had no one ever to throw it to. Or at least the game was always designed in such a way where you're like, who the hell is he throwing it to and why? Like, we had Jimmy Graham here as the tight end, and we he never really got going. And it was always kind of like, how do you have a player of that caliber and not utilize him correctly. So, you know, he's always had bad offensive coordinators. He's got a head coach who's defensive minded and he's got a, 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 a general manager up front who always seems to draft the wrong people on the offensive line for him. They don't build the team around him. They build it around the defense and then they just expect him when they're behind in games to bail them out in the fourth quarter. And it's really, really frustrating as a Seattle fan to see that. And then simultaneously, you go over to, like, say, the Kansas City Chiefs or even the Baltimore Ravens. And you're like, wait a minute. Hold on. Patrick Mahomes has Andy Reid, one of the greatest offensive head coaches in the history of the sport, as his head coach. His offensive line is tier one. His receivers are amazing. Uh, you know, they write up the playbook specifically for him. They play to his strengths, mitigate his weaknesses. Of course he looks good. <laughs> you know, it was, it was ridiculous to a lot of Seattle fans that were sitting here going, how is Russell Wilson not the best in the world considering, you know, he succeeds despite all these disadvantages, whereas somebody else is succeeding clearly because they have a lot of advantages. And then, you know, you see in the last Super Bowl, and of course there were other games like this, of course, but you see in the last Super Bowl, hey, you know what? If Patrick Mahomes is expected to win the game by himself, he's no Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson can pull magic out of his ass. Okay, it's just, it's insane. So for me, I'm sitting here going, look, if you take away Russell Wilson, Seattle Seahawks are a 7-9 and nine team at best every year. That's it. He is worth at least five more wins every year. Patrick Mahomes? Eh. 
Like this even this even came, and I'm sorry for the extended football rant, but this even this even happened when it came to the running backs. Okay, it was the first year of Ezekiel Elliott for the Dallas Cowboys, and of course Seattle still had Marshawn Lynch. And I remember in the NFL players top 100 or whatever, Ezekiel Elliott. Elliot, I forget exactly where in that list he went, but he was the number one running back on that list. And the number two was Marshawn Lynch. And it seems so ridiculous to me because even in the highlights where they showed, here's Ezekiel Elliott and look at how great he was. Because Dallas Cowboys had at the time the greatest offensive line I've ever seen, every time they called up a run play, he would run right down the middle. And I mean, literally, he could have run with both his arms outstretched both ways. And for the first 10 yards of his run, nobody would have touched him. His offensive line parted the ways like Moses in the Red Sea. And he just, he could have walked into the end zone every time. It was insane the amount of protection he had. Meanwhile, the highlights, and again, these are the highlights. These are supposed to show off just what makes these players great. So for Ezekiel Elliott, I'm like, any running back would have looked awesome in that scenario. I mean, these are your highlights, and the best you can show is that, you know, he could have he could have walked it in. That really doesn't show me that he's great. That shows me that the team around him is great. Why is he considered all that awesome? And then, of course, you had Marshawn Lynch, and again, up here in Seattle, the offensive line does no favors for him at all. He can barely squeeze through when he runs through the middle. He immediately gets hit by three or four defensive linemen on the whatever the other team is, and yet he still breaks through, and he still runs it in for the touchdown. Okay, that was Marshawn Lynch. It didn't matter if you hit him. He just kept going. Okay, so when you ask me, you know, which one's the more valuable running back or which one's the more talented running back, I'm like, yeah, the one who's doing it all by his damn self. Are you crazy? Anyway, whole point of this rant. We're still on the COVID thing. Cuba. Again, one of my favorite topics on this one. Cuba. So Cuba has this ongoing embargo with the United States. The United States sanctions them. They don't let them trade with them. Uh, everything, right? And this really sucks in the world of medical equipment because, as a lot of capitalists will tell you, the United States has the best healthcare system in the world. Whee! Yeah, forget that for a minute. They're kind of right when it comes to equipment. We have the best equipment for medical use on the planet. We are hands down the best. If you need a defibrillator or any other kind of medical equipment on the planet, you buy American, damn it. You just do. Uh, that also comes when it, uh, when you think about laboratories and experiments and, uh, hey, we need to, we need to isolate this protein in the, in the vac, in the, um, in the disease and the, in the virus so that we can figure out, uh, the vaccine to kill it. You know, I mean, we, we are, whew, we are really good at that, but because we don't trade with places like Cuba they don't get it. They get hand-me-downs from other countries uh, and around the way thing. In fact, people that trade with Cuba, companies, I'm talking companies that trade with Cuba, have to be really careful not to mention to third parties that they sell to Cuba. For example, if you need, uh, I need a glass, I need a glass, and you want to buy it from Great Britain, Okay, so a company in Great Britain wants to wants to sell you this glass. You can't tell them, oh, by the way, uh, when I'm done using this glass and it's going to be a used glass, I'm going to sell it uh, to Cuba. Because the sanctions are so strong and the United States has such a gigantic footprint when it comes to stuff like this. 
they won't sell it to you. If they know there's an opportunity, there's a there's a possibility that Cuba could be a third party retailer down the road 10 years from now after it's already used up. So Cuba does not have the best medical equipment in the world. And what's interesting is right now they have five, five different coronavirus vaccines in the works in late stages, five in development. Just a couple months after, you know, uh, the United States and, and Great Britain and all them came up with one. And they did this despite the fact that they can't trade anything. And that's, that's amazing to me. Like, like right now, I mean, a lot of people would obviously, oh, America is the greatest country in the world because we came up with a coronavirus vaccine first. Ha ha ha. And I'm sitting here going, no, that would actually be wrong because Cuba is about to have five and yeah, it took them longer, but they did more with less because you also consider Cubans can't come to the United States for schooling. This is a big deal in the third world. I mean, we even took um, Kim Jong-un, uh, current leader of North Korea, uh, went to, I think, Switzerland for Western education. Like, like they do that. Um, and, you know, maybe not Kim Jong-un, maybe he's a bad example, but like the Chinese, the Chinese will send their kids to the United States. They'll send them to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all those schools. They'll send them there to learn at American institutions and then take it back. I mean, they, they will come here, they'll live here in a, in a capitalist, you know, dem democracy, and then end up going back to communist China because everyone acknowledges the United States also has a fantastic schooling system. Now, now, I'll argue that too, but whatever. Cuba can't do that. So Cuba has to settle for less than optimal schooling, less than optimal parts, pieces, individuals. Obviously, they can't just import people. Like if the United States has a, a shortage of workers or specialized talent, they can go overseas. I mean, just... Living up here in the Pacific Northwest, if you've ever been to a Microsoft campus up here, there are a lot of people from India. It's not a negative. It's just true. They speak English, and also they're smart as hell. So, of course, they come over here. Uh, that's what. That's how Microsoft grows its brand. It is not afraid to import ideas. Cuba also can't do that. Cuba is stuck entirely with Cubans, which is fine, but it's not ideal. Diversity does build strength, and Cuba has a dearth of it. Um because of their situation. But long, long time ago in the 1980s, ugh, Fidel Castro uh, was obsessed with medical journals. And he got this idea in his head that biotechnology would be the wave of the future. He was, uh, he was fascinated by the subject. So because, you know, communism, and yes, only a socialist state could do this, he bent his entire economy and educational system to focus strictly on biotechnology, okay? Imagine a whole society, say, for example, South Korea, uh, deciding that uh, if your uh, woman child wants to be an athlete, it has to be in golf, okay? But instead of everybody just deciding that, the, the government steps in and does it. You know, 
but but that's basically what happened down there is all the way back in the 80s with hardly anything uh cuba went ahead and started up this humongous biotechnology situation and that to me is nuts now one of the upsides to things like this, um, regardless of sanctions against Cuba and everything else, is because they are considered a third world country, um, you know, they, they tend to think more about other third world countries. Right now, if you want a vaccine, you have to pay top dollar from the United States or the EU to get one. Well, Cuba can't afford that shit. Not only that, Cuba's on a lot of uh, do not trade with me states. There are also states like Venezuela, Iran, North Korea. And North Korea at least can uh, can go ahead and trade with China because China is so big and powerful, it really does not care if the United States sanctions someone. It It's just like, yes, okay, it pats the United States on the head. Yes, good job sanctioning. We'll take it from here. <clears throat> you know, um, but sanctioned nations depend on each other. So when Venezuela was running out of medical supplies because the United States sanctioned them because medical supplies somehow lead to Maduro no longer being president there. I never understood that one. Uh, you know, countries like Cuba go ahead and step up because that's one of the areas they're really awesome at is biotechnology. It's medical. It's something that it it's now their thing. Uh, if you ever watch the... Um, there was a Michael Moore documentary, I forget which one it was, but he ended up taking 9-11 survivors down to Cuba for medical care, and they got it. And of course, it was cheap and free, and I'm sure the Cuban government was more than happy to make the United States look silly uh, by taking care of their heroes for them. Um, but the reason they could do that is because that was something that they focused on. They decided as a nation, and yes, as a crazed lunatic leader, that that was how they were going to do things. So, anyway, if, if you want one of the top premium vaccines, uh, chances are you're going to be outbid by places like the United States and the EU and, and other wealthy nations. Okay, if you're Zimbabwe right now, if you're even Jamaica, where are you getting your vaccine from? Where can you afford it? There's no cheap, easy version of it. Oh, but now there is. So this is where something like Cuba gets to be really, really awesome. Assuming at least two of their vaccines in late stage trials right now succeed and pass and are worthy, because the nature of Cuba and the way they're planning on doing things, they're going to sell their vaccine at cost to fellow third world countries and also, you know, countries like Iran and Venezuela that are on that special list that says they can't receive medical supplies. Um, but then if the United States needs them or somebody a little wealthier, they'll, you know, jack up the price and be like, well, we know you can afford it. So yeah, it's a thousand dollars a dose. Eat it. So this, I, I, I think it's, I think it's good news that there are countries that, uh, that are available. I think it's still ridiculous that the United States treats Cuba the way that it does these days. Clearly, <coughs> excuse me, clearly there's more to Cuba than tourism. There is something we could, we could learn right here from this. I mean, how does a country that small 
develop five separate vaccines with subpar equipment and no benefit of, you know, help from the outside world. How do they do that? How is that possible? There's something to learn here. And the fact that the United States still treats them like the redheaded stepchild on their border is, is crazy. You know, I, I really hope that President Biden uh, goes back to Obama-era policies regarding Cuba and lifts these sanctions and just be like, look, again, I want my government and my politicians to be able to change their minds. I would love for our government to just say, hey, yeah, Cuba, pff, yeah, the, the Castro's won. <laughs> they did. They all got to die of old age. We did not oust them from power. Cuba is in currently no danger of being overthrown as a communist nation. We trade with China. It's a huge hypocrisy. We should be trading with Cuba. Let some tourism go down there. I mean, what? The people in power in Cuba are not hurting it's the people that we're hurting by not spending our tourism dollars or allowing people to go there and get vaccinated. I mean, yeah, um, it's, it's one of those silly things that we do, but you know, that leads me into my next part is, uh, you know, benefits of a Joe Biden as president. So we don't usually get this. Uh, Joe Biden is unique. Uh, in his role. Um, he was vice president for eight years. Um, but that alone doesn't really change much. I mean, we have had vice presidents become presidents before. This is very unique because the timing of when he was president. Um, he has experience. Okay. He was there, but he, but he also was there in the White House during the right supremacy's maturation from fringe to the no-shit political party of opposition. He got to witness this firsthand, okay? 2008, yeah, the base of the Republicans were still kooky. You had that old lady try to tell John McCain that uh, Obama was a secret Muslim. and But, you know, you had John McCain also wrench the microphone away from her, tell her she was wrong, and then tell the truth, that President Obama is a good man. They just have differing views on how to run the country, which is what you wanted in 2008 from someone running for president. It is still cited today as one of the best moments of John McCain's entire career. That's no longer the case now. So he got to see this thing happen. And then in 2016, because he wasn't running for president, he could watch from the outside like the rest of us and witness the mistakes of Clinton and also the rise of Trumpism. Which means he also has perspective, and the perspective is similar to us. He has experience. I mean, I think it was uh, 26 years in the Senate. I think um, I could be wrong there. Uh, followed by eight years as vice president. During this whole time, he saw the Republican Party start off normal, and then Reagan, and then Gingrich, and Bush, <laughs> and then Trump. I mean, he saw the entire 
shift. He's seen it all. And he got to see the last election and the last four years as a spectator, which is us. So it gives him perspective, which is fantastic. And again, I hope this 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 has helped with the, the coronavirus right now. Uh, because he got to witness it and he got to see all the things that Trump was doing wrong. and was like, oh my God, let's not do that. Which is good for all of us, of course. Um, but it also gives him experience and perspective on how to handle the GOP. Right now, the GOP is howling about bipartisanship and, and how, you know, Democrats are just pushing through bills without any semblance of, of trying to work with the other side. And it's, ex, it's in his experience, in his experience, that lets him know that their howls about this are complete and total bullshit. And he has the perspective to know that people don't care how you pass a bill, but that it passes. Okay, we don't care. We really don't. Do you think anyone on the right supremacy right now cares about Amy Comey Barrett and how she was rushed through the Supreme Court in a matter of days? Do you think anybody on the right cares about Merrick Garland not even getting a hearing for the Supreme Court for an entire fucking year? No, they don't. They care about Gorsuch, who took that seat because Trump won. The people don't care about the rules. We really don't. We care about results, which is why all this feigning and fawning over the filibuster and will they or won't they is all bullshit at the end of the day. If they get rid of the filibuster and then the Democrats ram through a whole shit ton of legislation, they will be lauded as heroes for it. However, if they get rid of the filibuster and then nothing happens, then they will be blamed for everything wrong. That's all people care about. People people go to the polls and they go to the pollsters and they say, oh, I, I do care about bipartisanship. I, I think they should all work together because of course you want them to work together. They're your government. We all see them as one single entity and we wish that that entity would, would get shit straight and work together. That's currently not the case, <laughs> you know? So yeah, we all want bipartisanship. I would love a... United States Senate that doesn't come to gridlock strictly based on who the fuck the president is and that they would work together and sure, one party's in power, but the other side could say, okay, yeah, you're going to pass this Medicare for all bill, but could we like make some adjustments so it's not too fucking crazy or, or anything like that. But instead it's just our way or the highway and fuck you guys. And that's all because of the way it's designed and What's interesting about Biden is that he has the experience, he has the perspective, he should know this. People don't care. Okay? They care about winning. They really do. Right now, that's the world we're in. We care about winning. And most people don't care how the sausage is made. They just want to know that it tastes delicious in their mouth. That's what's going on. And if the Democrats are winning... They will be reelected in 2022, and it is going to be very hard for them to do that. The polls, the numbers, the way the gerrymandering is currently set up. Kevin McCarthy is going to be our next Speaker of the House. That should really scare Nancy Pelosi, you would think, into doing something. Still waiting on that. She loves playing the victim, though, instead. 
So it should be very interesting to see if Biden will break the mold and change things. Not a not a hundred percent on that one. Anyway, we still got more. This is going to be a long episode today. There was a lot going on. I love Mondays. Uh, lots of news to dissect. But see you in a minute. Okay, and now a small shift. Uh, just because everybody's bringing it up. Um, so the cop who murdered George Floyd's trial started yesterday. Um, and basically they're talking about two things. Uh, jurors and the video. Okay. Uh, the jury system is messed up, and I'm not sure how to fix it. I'm sure some lawyers have ideas. Um, but the video. I'm going to say something crazy. It doesn't matter. It really doesn't. Uh, Philander Castile was on camera being shot to death by his cop. Uh, there were also live witnesses who saw everything, literally sitting right next to him. Uh, that police officer was acquitted and received $48,000 in a police contract buyout. So, hey, sorry you were put on trial. Here's forty-eight grand. Have, you know, some luck in your next life. So, you know, I, I really don't think it matters. Uh, the defense is going to paint Floyd as a criminal. They'll focus on his toxicity report, which showed previous drug use. And they'll point out his pre-existing conditions and all this other stuff. They'll try to basically murder your, uh, you know, muddy it up uh, so that it doesn't look like a cop kneeling directly onto his neck with his full body weight for nine straight minutes uh, caused his death. <sighs> yeah. Anyway. Um... Then Floyd's murderer will likely be acquitted, or at worst, uh, a hung jury. Uh, if it is a hung jury at that point, I expect the prosecutors will just not proceed with a retrial uh, due to fought. You know, that's that's just the way things work. Uh, they're going to say, hey, we gave it our best shot. It didn't work. Meh. They don't think they could do anything differently. Um, and really, if you lose with such a slam dunk case... <laughs> I mean, if you can't convince 12 people that that was murder, I mean, and let's, let's, let's be honest, all you need is one white supremacist on there or one person who, you know, just cannot for the life of them see police officers as the bad guy. It's a hung jury and they're, they're not going to try to roll the dice on that again. So if, if this gets a hung jury or an acquittal, then yeah, that's the end of that. Um, and due to qualified immunity, since George Floyd's murderer was acting as a police officer, uh, he will escape any civil lawsuits and therefore face zero consequences. Oh, he doesn't get to be a cop anymore. Yeah, neither do I. I still find a way to make things work. Um, and, you know, he will join a pantheon of American slave militia members who murdered black men in broad daylight with plenty of witnesses and escaped. And furthermore, expect George Floyd's murderer to be headlining CPAC 2022. I guarantee you, if he is acquitted, he will be at CPAC next year. I would bet significant amounts of money on that one. Um, so yeah, just since everybody's talking about it, that's my two cents. I don't, I'm not interested in trials. I grew up in the 90s with uh, OJ Simpson trial and I did say it glued to my television watching that whole thing. And was amazed that he was acquitted. For me, it seemed open and shut and whatever. I think we can all agree now he probably did do it. Um, but, you know, because the nature of these things never has to do with evidence. Okay, if it was about evidence, 
O.J. Simpson would have would still be in prison for killing two people, stabbing them to death. Okay. Um, and if this was just about the evidence, I mean, it should be as open and shut a case as humanly possible. Would George Floyd still be alive if the murdering cop didn't have his knee on his neck for nine straight minutes? Yes. Hence, toxicity reports and pre-existing conditions don't matter. The inciting incident. Pretty obvious. <laughs> you know, um, you know, if evidence mattered, th this trial would already be over. Right? He wouldn't even be going to trial. He would be looking for a plea agreement. Okay, if evidence mattered, I mean, honestly... The prosecutor would have been like, dude, you can take life in prison or 30 plus years if you plead guilty. And he would have taken that. So, um, yeah, that's that's the world I live in. Now I've only got like two more stories that I'm really interested in uh, that, that I'll be bringing up today. Um, I saw this one in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, and just, just slap my head in dumbness. So the headline is customers ask their customer or excuse me, companies ask their customers to help them cut emissions. Okay. That's interesting. Um, but you got these companies like Colgate, Procter and Gamble, L'Oreal, um, uh, are among the groups, uh, shifting focus away from their actions on to you, the consumer. Basically, you know, Colgate started this whole, you know, turn the water off while you're brushing your teeth thing. And these other groups, you know, they, they make hair care products and everything else. They're like, oh, you know, use less when you shampoo. And, and yeah, you, you might have seen stuff. You might not. Some of it's common sense. Some of it isn't. Um, but what I find very interesting is that this is a classic uh, corporations not wanting to own up and want to shift the blame away from themselves. Um, they want to be exempt of any consequences and they want to blame it all on you. Um, this was witnessed to the greatest effect in a TED talk by Amy Cuddy. Uh, that's with two D's. So C-U-D-D-Y and her power poses. Now, um, I used to be a huge fan of TED Talks, and to a degree, I still am. Some of them are pretty entertaining. Um, some of them really do, you know, share insights, interesting things, and, and I'm all for that. Uh, but there are, there is an underlying theme there. Um, you know, these TED Talks are not free, and who are they put on uh, by? You know, who, who pays for everything? who pays for the stage, the setting, and, and all that, and, and also the speakers. Uh, in a lot of cases, some of these speakers are there to, uh, you know, build their brand, sell their books, you know, whatever, but some of them are paid to go. So you really do have to be careful uh, with your TED Talks because the messaging can get a little screwy. And that's what came up with Amy Cuddy. Now, Amy Cuddy studies women in the workplace, and she studies misogynism and sexism and everything all in the workplace. But when she gives her TED Talk, it she doesn't mention any of that. Her TED Talk that went viral, basically, was all about power poses. 
you might have seen this. It's basically uh, the Wonder Woman pose, you know, stay, you know, feet spread apart, hands on the hips, you know, kind of a de deal. And uh, and she found that uh, anyone, but women in particular, could assume a pose for a few moments, and it would give them confidence, and and then they could go into the boardroom full of men and and be confident. So the message that was being sold to the audience members and also the, the proprietors of the location and who were paying Amy Cuddy to be there, they don't need, you know, women, women don't need equality in the workplace. They don't need to be empowered. They just need to feel empowered. That's where the onus gets shifted. It's shifted away from the company. The company doesn't have to do anything, right? They can keep operating the exact same way. It's the women who need to adjust their behavior. And this is something that an individual can do on their own to feel more confident. To feel empowered. And CEOs and billionaires love hearing that. I can change nothing, pay no consequences, and the women who work for me will file less HR complaints about misogyny? Sign me up. It's a fantastic thing because if you've ever, uh, it's a rare thing, but if you've ever asked somebody to give up something, especially a wealthy person, they're not about to do it. Because I guarantee you, the same people that bitch about affirmative action in schools are also the same people who will fight you to the death about their legacies. You know, if they if they are bitching, chances are if they're bitching about Harvard accepting too many colored people, it's because little Johnny didn't get in. But if you told them that little Johnny got in because they went to Harvard, and little Johnny wasn't the brightest apple in the box and that actually he caused some colored people not to go to that school because his legacy was so important to the school if you told them that they'd be like well you know i got mine so this Really be careful with the TED Talks, of course, but, but you know, I, I love seeing these. And, of course, it's the Wall Street Journal, so there was no negativity about, you know, why is the company so focused on the consumer? What, what is the company doing? You know, those questions were never asked in this article. It was all simply how, uh, basically, companies are asking their customers to help them cut emissions. And uh, I think I saw one part that said, you know, uh, one of the executives said, well, you know, 60% of our products use uh, the emissions from our product comes from our customers. And I'm like, why are you even measuring that? Why, why is that part of your whole scheme to cut emissions? Where's your onus? Well, why not just shift it to that? Hey, these are things we can control. I mean, sure, it's, it's good for Colgate to put out advertisements or awareness projects about, you know, hey, shut off the tap water while you're brushing your teeth. That's a good message for anybody, and I have nothing against that. But basing your entire emission cutting on getting other people to behave is ridiculous. It's absolutely 
dumb. And it seems like exactly the kind of thing that comes out of a uh, capitalist billionaire world where it's like, well, I don't want to give up anything I have. Um, but hey, look, if other people do things that doesn't affect my bottom line, then, uh, then, then we'll meet our quota. I don't know. It just, it's a crazy thing the way the capitalist system works. Um, it, it really is. Um, and, and stuff like this drives me up a wall. <laughs> uh, lastly, um, just a, just a quick cautionary tale of be careful what you wish for. So Lebanon is, uh, the country that, uh, was home to that magnificently gigantic port explosion that you probably saw on the internet about a year ago. Um, just, just this massive massive failure of government dealing with leftover waste basically um and so everybody clearly looked at the local government and said oh my god what were you thinking we need to we need to address this we need to remove you from office and they did successfully the uh the previous leadership is out they all resigned in disgrace you know you're thinking good fantastic they need to get out well now they're teetering on the verge of collapse you see, like most democracies, there's a there's a level of split government, and this government is very very split. Um, so basically, they've been shut down for quite a while, similar to the way the United States shuts down, except in their case, um, the country has no natural resources to take care of uh, electricity. They have to import their like diesel to get their generators up and running and they don't have the money to do that and because the government is shut down they don't have the money to pay for it so you know unlike here in the united states where we, if we have a shutdown yeah some some you know uh, places closed but but the banks are still open and the grocery store is still open and you know food is still on the shelves you know i mean when we talk government shutdown it really it doesn't affect our day-to-day -to -day too much you know, I mean, things still, basic things still happen. The water's still running, the power's still on, the roads still get cleaned, you know, basics. That doesn't happen in every country. And in Lebanon, that's currently what's going on, where, you know, the, the power vacuum was filled by Lebanon's B team, basically, and they can't agree on a government. So they're literally struggling with keeping their power plants operating or operational. So, you know, it's just one of those, be careful what you wish for. It's, it's, it's again, the, the devil you know is better than the devil you don't know. And, uh, you know, the biggest, <clears throat> the biggest example of this to me is uh, Iraq and also Syria. You know, in Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein was a known quantity. He kept Iran in check. Things were more or less stable-ish. Um, and of course, hindsight being 2020, we know now that he had no designs on attacking America or anything like that. Um, and then you go over to Syria. And yeah, you know, we Assad's a bad dude. He, he chemical attacked his own people. Yes, he deserves to be gone. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, do, do we, does anybody have any idea who would replace him? Like, that's the question I want. That's the question I want. If if I was at the press conference the other day with President Biden, I would have asked him about Syria and be like, okay, hypothetically, we succeed. Syria is overthrown. Do you have any 
idea who the replacement will be? Can you guarantee that it won't be some, you know, military general who just performed a coup at the last second to save himself and ends up being worse than Assad? Can you guarantee that? Can you guarantee it won't be uh, one of these rebels that we backed that turns out is, uh, you know, Osama bin Laden part two, but now he's in charge of an entire country? Can you guarantee that? We have to be very careful what we're what we're doing here. And, you know, the easy response is to let the local people decide for themselves. But a lot of times the local people don't get a choice. Okay. Um, just to, you know, bring it home, I had no choice in Donald Trump. None. I live in Washington State. This state was going blue no matter who the hell I voted for. And same thing in the primary. Well, first off, I wasn't a registered Republican, I don't think, at the time. Um, but I certainly didn't vote for him in the primary. It didn't matter. I didn't even want his name on the ballot. But, you know, I got it. Because that's the way it works. I have no control over these things. Most people have absolutely no control over these things. So... You know, we can wish for them to be gone all we want. We really do have to ask ourselves, okay, well, who are we replacing them with? Could they be worse? Could they be different? And also, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I think this is also a cautionary tale uh, against things like term limits. Uh, term limits are a very popular idea, mostly because Congress is extremely unpopular, and a lot of people see, you know, somebody like Mitch McConnell be there for over 20 years, and it's just like, Jesus, would you get that old fart out of the way and get him moved out? And they always kind of forget the fact that there are some people they like who have been there a long time. I'm against term limits just because government is a complicated machine, and you need people who know how to run it. And for every Mitch McConnell who you wish would just get the hell out of the way, You'd also be sacrificing a lot of Congress people who keep their heads down, who know the rules, who know how to legislate and draft things in certain ways, who can make sure we don't descend into monkeys flinging poo at each other. So, you know, you do, you really don't want term limits. I know people are fans of it and they hate Congress and I get it. You wish some of these guys would just go out to pasture. You really, I, I, I think you'd be setting yourself up for a situation kind of like Lebanon right now. Maybe not as dire as the electricity being turned off, but you would get a lot of novices who don't know how the hell government works. One of the benefits of having some senators or congresspeople there for a decade is they know how things work. They know how to get things moving. They've built relationships with certain individuals that they know they can go to and work with. If there's a high turnover... There's no continuity. You never know who you could end up with in there. I mean, it's, uh, okay, so wishful thinking on the part of a lot of Republicans back in 2016 was, oh, well, you know, uh, the the GOP in the House and Senate, they'll, they'll keep Trump in check. You know, his worst impulses will be kept in check. We don't have to worry about them because the right people will be there. Well, in your magical world where there are now term limits, you really have no idea who's going to be there to keep check on things. This could be good. This could be extremely radical. I mean, we have Marjorie Taylor Greene and a few other crazy, like seriously crazy people in Congress right now. And right now they're on the, they're the minority. Uh, 
But you can't tell me that if every single Florida politician, Republican especially, had to resign tomorrow because of term limits, that they wouldn't immediately all be replaced with QAnon conspiracy theorists. Right now would be a very dangerous time to enforce term limits on the House. You could end up with some seriously, significantly messed up individuals. So, again, be careful what you wish for. Um, you know, Lebanon, obviously, the port explosion was a huge deal. And maybe it was the right thing to do for that particular leadership to step down and, uh, and not be involved. Uh, maybe it's not. We don't know. Um, and who knows? This could all resolve itself and Lebanon could be a beacon of wonderfulness and brightfulness in the country, in the world, and especially in the region. Um, or it could just end up going down this rabbit hole of crap. But right now, I'd be very worried if I was a member of that country because if the lights don't turn on, that's when people get ideas and not always the best ones. Anyway, okay, so that is our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. I am sorry for the length, but there was just a lot of stuff I wanted to be able to talk about today. Uh, also, sorry if you can hear my kids in the background. They have woken up as uh, Daddy has gone over. <clears throat> so now I'm going to make them breakfast, and uh, I will see you guys tomorrow. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and all that good stuff. Um, we do have Gmail. It'll be in the show notes, and Twitter, and Facebook, and all that stuff. And I will see you next time. Have a good day.